Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and this week I'm looking for the best book by Truman Capote. It's his birthday. To help me. Happy birthday, Happy Truman. Birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Is he alive still? No. Definitely. Oh, well. There are a few people who are emphatically dead. He is one of them. Got yeah, it. He's famously dead. Famously dead. And to help me are two high school English teachers. Famously alive high school English teachers. Famously yeah. alive. So far, pretty alive. Uh, Nick, fun fact for you. Truman Capote is not only dead, but his ashes were auctioned off for about $45,000. So oh, um, somebody brutal. owns his ashes. Seems cheap. See, yeah. Oh, I think it's a great deal. How uh, much have we made from our OnlyFans? Can we pool it? Do you think? <laughs> I think there's, there's got to be some real about selling like human remains. I, I wonder if you bought Truman Capote's ashes for $45,000. Do you think it makes sense to like put them in smaller vials and sell them individually? Like in like $5,000 vials? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you could okay. cut, you could cut in some, cut in some wood ash, uh, <laughs> some dust. Oh yeah. You can bulk that thing up for sure. Right. Like USDA, how much of this actually has to be Truman Capote for us to label it as Truman Capote? Oh, right. It's like organic. <laughs> Joe, like yeah, okay. you don't need a pound of Truman Capote. Like two ounces <laughs> will do. Do you know what, what I mean? I, yeah. I'm not snorting pure Capote. Yeah. All right. My name is Joe right. Holshue. I am a high school English teacher. I also know a lot about Truman Capote all of a sudden. And Nick, if you are looking for Truman Capote's best book, I suspect it's In Cold Blood, which I bought like a year ago. But I think right. Breakfast at Tiffany's might be his second best book. And that's what I brought this week. Shameless plug. Uh Good afternoon, howdy, uh, Nick, and howdy, Joe, and howdy to the Litheads, and a very not howdy to the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the late unlamented USSR. Today, I brought a strange little book by our aforementioned mostly dead Truman Capote about an opera, a train ride, and collaboration between Soviet Russia and American, American artists. My book is called The Muses Are Heard. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> Ian, I have a question for you. Um, it's more of an accusation. Uh, there's currently a hurricane. <laughs> oh, here we go. And you know, by the time this releases, it's going to be so accurate. Listen, here's what happened to me today. One of my, one of my uh, associates, one might dare to call him an acquaintance or even possibly um, a work friend, um, drew a little hurricane symbol next to my, 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 my name on the whiteboard that we used to check in. Right. Um, and I was like, what's that? Like the flash sign? And he's like, no, no, it's no, not. No. It's a sign of your merciless destruction. Are we going to make jokes? Are we going to make jokes about the fact that Truman, Truman Capote's name sounds kind of like the word compote, which is what happens when you make a jam type thing with fruit on the stove or are we just, are we I just was waiting for it to come up that? naturally. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're right. I should have let that one just kind of. Yeah, you should have let that one foster. I should have let that compote bubble up. Yeah, similar to like some sort of bubbling compote. Um, very good, very good. Um, so I don't know. I certainly don't know about his famous death, as Joe has outlined. Excited to hear about. Yeah, well, let's let's just go behind the curtain a little bit. Nick Nick has been in the in feeling feeling his oats. Um, kind of the 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 iron fist within the velvet glove. 
foisting uh, themes upon us left and right. And Nick said we should do Capote. Nick, what do you know about Truman Capote besides the fact that Joe brought in cold blood and I think maybe lost? Yeah. um, I feel like I should have won. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Good. Good addition. Um, (laughs) I I feel strongly. (laughs) Um, I don't know anything about him. I think I saw that movie. Which is oh, pretty yeah. with Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Did he talk like that? Is yes. that like a real voice? You want to hear something fascinating? I just learned. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that singers will uh, adjust their speaking voice to be in the key that they sing in. Uh, you know, no best. way. And that wow. that is a way of like training their muscles. And so That's I'm wondering, disgusting. does Truman Capote sing at all? If he does, it's a falsetto. <laughs> Joe, it's a falsetto. You're you're our you're our resident um yeah. our resident operatic tenor. So do you just break mm-hmm. off a few bars. Yeah. For those that don't know, the at least the movie, I, I've never watched an interview, but like at least the movie, I mean, it's it it almost sounds like a joke. Like, <laughs> yeah. So no, like Truman Capote's voice and, yeah. in real life does sound like that. Yeah. Like the first time you ever see a Truman Capote interview, that it, that's the exact reaction you have. You're like. Yeah. Mm, What's going on? Is this, yeah, is he making fun of someone? Is this a character? Mm-hmm. Is Truman Capote the same person as Orson Welles? No, those are different people. Because I get, I get very, I get very Orson Welles vibes from Truman Capote, especially like their late, their late careers, their late lives mm-hmm. when, when Welles was just kind of delivering these bonkers interviews about how he hated <laughs> various wasted. Hollywood individuals. <laughs> and, and Capote, Capote was going on, going on talk shows and just, just yelling, to like telling like um, scandalous stories about his rival journalist friends, <laughs> yes. enemies, enemies, not even in front of his enemies. He's like, Hey, Gore Vidal, I hate that guy. Let me tell you a scandalous story about Gore Vidal. And he's like obviously the- drunk on this, on this talk show. I think it was the main reason he was invited on talk shows later in his life. They're like, well, we could have Capote on. He'll talk shit about a bunch of people. <laughs> Good for the ratings. Uh, well, welcome. Let head see you don't know lit a weekly or as we call it strongly podcast for every week. I um, pick a theme, like some sort of book dictator, a book tater, <laughs> which is some, yeah. actually sounds more like a book made out of potatoes. Um, <laughs> and What's book uh, Ian and expresses? Joe, two high school English teachers, bring recommendations. And just to upset mm-hmm. one of them, we pick a winner. And to keep us on track, we do have some show rules. Rule number one. Rule number one. Rule number one. Rule number, rule number one, one. Only unavoidable spoilers today. Gentlemen, rule number two. Omit needless words, Joseph. Or omit words, words, Joe. And then (laughs) rule number three, only winning matters. Um, Vince Lombardi. And of course, we we do also have our shadow rules, which are, as ever, uh, stay on the train, don't get off the train, and please no taking photographs of the military installments. Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds and tell me what your book is about? Give me a taste of your compost. Nick, Breakfast at Tiffany's is the breakout work of American alternative rock band Deep Blue Something. Released (laughs) as a single in July 1995, it was the song's band's only hit in the United States. It's about a man whose girlfriend is on the verge of a breakup with him because they two have nothing in common. Desperate to find something, the man brings up the Audra Hepburn film, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and the girlfriend recalls that they both kind of liked it. The Mm. Houston Press listed the song as the second worst song by an artist from Texas. The worst song is, of course, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. Ice Baby! <laughs> Lovely. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. You will be punished for this at some <laughs> point, Joe. <laughs> let's give a round of applause to Joe for commitment to the bit. Ian. <laughs> it's not going to be nearly as good. to hopefully tell me about a book. 
In the early 1950s, the Everyman Opera Company toured Europe, performing George Gershwin's jazz opera, Porgy and Bess. It was a huge success funded by the U.S. Department of State. But when Everyman wanted to take the show to Russia, the Department of State pulled out. So the Soviets funded the visit of the opera company, and Truman Capote went along for the ride. Vodka is drunk, spies are eluded, and a very sweaty Russian man tries to summarize an opera in my book, The Muses Are Heard. Good times. Is good times in the name of the title? Uh, no, but it should be. The, the, no, the, novel's, the novel's full title is The Muses Are, the Muses are Heard, an account. That's all. It, it's like the colon is going to set up more like an account of the great train trip. It's just, no, the, this is all you get. It's just, just it's a comic account. novel, if you couldn't tell. You know, I was surprised when I was looking back at Truman Capote books because like Truman Capote feels like this larger than life character, like a person who we know who he is. We know his celebrity. When you look at lists of Truman Capote books, I couldn't believe how few of them yeah. I have ever heard of. Like he's written quite a few books and not very many that you could name. He, and, and, and yeah, he, he had he seemed to wield this influence. Um, there's a there's a chapter or, or a. Maybe it's a, a long article he published in Playboy that apparently just called out most of the New York City elite in the 1960s. And it had apparently a huge effect on the New York social scene in the 1960s. But I had never obviously never heard of it. Ian, uh, why don't you go first? OK, um, wait, yeah. what did you bring? It's called The Muses Are Heard. And it's um, this is a, a nonfiction. It is nonfiction, yes. Yeah, so Jonah, it actually matters. And then, Joe, your book is fiction, correct? It is it's a song. Fiction. Joe brought a, it's it's not about a three minutes song. song. It's not about breakfast or a song. Okay. Uh, it's not great. about breakfast. Ian, let's, let's base this episode in reality and start with yeah, nonfiction good. then. Good. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, so this is a book that that uh, Capote wrote early-ish in his career. Um, it is he he refers to it as a comic novel. Um, sorry, comic nonfiction novel. He does this annoying thing where Graphic he says novel. novel. No, no, comic isn't comedy. Oh. Um, funny. Uh, he calls it a novel, but it's not really a novel. But he he imagines the novel to be something more than just fiction. So it's a farce, really, because it's got a it's got a um, it sets up this unlikely event that has to happen, which is an American opera company performing a quintessentially American opera in Soviet Russia. And a farce, the form of the farce is shenanigans will ensue. You know shenanigans are going to ensue. And you, you have expectations. There will be probably showbiz divas, um, showbiz kind of shenanigans. Um, people who can't stand each other in the cast, people who are um, who are like backstabbing, people who are in relationships who shouldn't be, all that stuff. You'll have Russian stereotypes because it's in Russia. You'll have a wacky train trip. There will be interpersonal drama. How uh, wacky? Kind of a travelogue type situation. Oh, it's pretty wacky. I'll get to that. It's in off a bit. the rails. Oh, uh, yeah, we do. Joe. We do. It feels like we go off the rails. There's a part where there's a part where uh, they stop the train. The well, actually, they do stop the train. Well, actually, I should make that a, a soundboard thing. They stop the train uh, because the train is currently in. It starts in in, in Berlin and it goes into Russia um, through through um, through East Germany. And when they get to Russia, the Russian 
rails are wider apart than oh. so <laughs> famous railroad problem. There's a part where the Oops. Russian delegation who is who's met them says, would you guys like to stand out in the cold and watch them change the wheels? And everyone's like, uh, do you have <laughs> a paint drawing I could watch instead? Choice. That um, sounds like a field trip my mom would have brought us on when we were kids. <laughs> the wheels. So yeah. the book starts in Berlin. There is a train trip through through Russia. It ends in Leningrad. We get a lot of a lot of like good stuff in Leningrad. And then there's the performance. That's the, the culmination. This is a short, sweet book. It is eminently readable and it makes you think. Pretty good. How short? That's what I want to know. How short? It's 182 pages. That's how short and sweet. That is short and sweet. Yep. Very short. Boy, you could read that in a month or two. <laughs> I cranked through it. I cranked through it pretty fast. It was it was an easy, pleasant read. Um, you know, sometimes it, uh, like a hundred pages feels like long. When I was in grad school, a hundred pages of theory felt like several years. Yeah. Um, what did this? Yep. This was fast. Did he write a lot of nonfiction? Well, so it's interesting you asked that. So, so he he talks about this. Is this kind of new new journalism? Well, yeah. So this is that's that's a that's a great insight, Nick. I, I think he talks You're about welcome, this. Ian. Uh, well, it's really cool when you when you have these insights that I did. You hear that, Joe? Um, do I have to do everything around here? Congratulations, <laughs> Nick! I, this is a really big moment for the show. Uh, okay, so he talks about this story as follows: he he was looking around um, prose, the, the landscape of prose, as a writer tends to do, and he said, "You know what? Nobody's doing anything new with writing with prose. Nobody's done anything new since the 1920s. And so he says, I want to try doing journalism and comedy in the novel form. I want to combine these things. Um, so it's kind of like experimentation. So he writes the muses are heard and this makes him realize he can do this at scale. And I'm going to read a quote from, from him here to give you a sense of kind of how he sounds. Okay. He says, I wanted to inter- to produce a journalistic novel, something on a, on a large scale that would have the credibility of fact, the immediacy of film, the depth and freedom of prose and the precision of poetry. It was not until 1959 that some mysterious instinct directed me toward the subject, an obscure murder case in an isolated part of Kansas. And it was not until 1966 that I was able to publish my results in cold blood. So this book is like the seed for what he does in, in cold blood. And honestly, I think maybe the seed for some of that new journalism stuff that, that Joe is always screeching about this, this is, this is, <laughs> oh man, he just doesn't shut up about it. <laughs> I wrote one book like a year and a half ago. <laughs> uh, this is, this is fascinating because he, he starts with the muses are heard. He says, look, let's try this. And what ha- he says, the book didn't sell super well. The reviews were okay, but this showed me I could do it and I could do it well. And he's like, what if I did this, but with a more serious bent and, and, and kind of a bigger story. Was this really one of like the, was this like one of the first books to kind of attempt that? Nah, I, I don't, I, that's I, a bold I, claim. Let's I would just be back, hard. I'd be hard put that that to say that, but I can definitely see, I can see a clear like line of inheritance from Capote to Tom Wolfe, who wrote the right stuff down through John McPhee and even into, into like more, like mother micro history stuff follows on from this. Uh, this idea that, you know, you can you can write a really gripping book that is all true. And I think that's a bold that's a bold claim uh, at, at a certain point. Do you want to what? Tell us wacky things or I, I do have some wacky things. <laughs> okay. I, I'll, I'll wait. I'll <laughs> hold off on the, the wacky rails, things. Though. So, so, so we'll get to the wa- we'll, we'll, we'll we'll end with the wacky we'll build stuff up because, to wacky. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah right. it's that's important a good to build. idea. That's a good so idea. are either of you familiar with with the the opera I named um, in my 30 seconds, Porgy and Bess. No, I, I forgot what you said entirely. Yep. 
Uh-huh. No, every yeah. time Jeopardy has the category opera, I just leave yeah. the room you just, for a minute. You just you pull out a six shooter fire, empty the chambers into your television. <laughs> and yet another TV. Not tonight, Alex. His neighbors uh, are Alex? all dead. <laughs> um. So uh, this is this is a really it's a really interesting opera. It was written in the uh, first half of the century. I'm going to say the 30s, and it's focused on a community of black people in um, uh, a black community in South. Carolina. And it is in a time when black voices are kind of actively being trampled. And the 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 composer George Gershwin and his brother Ira Gershwin, who's a lyricist, they deliberately kind of foregrounded black voices to the extent that Ira, um, who is kind of took took control of this opera, said, I'm when this is performed in the US, only black opera singers are allowed to play the lead roles. So he said, like these are great. These are great roles, but you can't perform them. Like I'm, I'm going to insist. I'm going to have control over this casting. Like I'm not going to release this to opera companies who are going to, um, who are going to whitewash these roles. So this is this is a weird opera in the U.S. in the 1950s where sort of race relations are coming to a head, and there are riots, and there are there's a lot of brutality. Emmett Till is murdered, and so on and so forth. Um, we're kind of getting towards the civil rights movement. I mean, it's already starting in the 50s, and it's 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 ramping up. So in the U.S., this is a weird opera. And the U.S. is kind of like feels weird about this opera representing America. And the USSR is like, okay, cool. An opera which kind of gives the the, the lower classes of U.S. society a voice. The USSR likes that part of it. Ian, I'm sorry. Yeah. Is this a different opera or is this the opera in your book? This is the one that they're, that they're performing. Oh, thank yeah. God. Got okay, I thought there was, there was a parallel opera. This is the text, right? Their whole thing. <laughs> it's like, how many operas do I got to keep track of over here? They're going to Russia to perform this opera. And I'm telling you about this opera because yeah, I had to do it, all this it, research to understand like what was going on with this. Done. It wasn't just like, we're going to go perform a classic like The Marriage of Figaro. This is cutting edge. This right. is um, this is this, this is, is Little Shop of Horrors, basically. Kind of, yeah, the best of the best. Yeah, great. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in the U.S., this is hard for the U.S. to swallow this opera and the idea that they're going to take this over to Russia and Russia will be able to gloat oh, about man, how bad gotta, the U.S. is. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then the USSR oh, also boy. it's kind of a hard pill for them to swallow because this is how uh, Capote describes it. He says the opera, when slipped under the dialectical microscope, provides a test tube brimming with a kind of bacteria to which the present Russian regime is most allergic. It is extremely erotic, a serious cause for dismay in a nation with laws so prim persons can be arrested for kissing in public. It is God-fearing. Over and over again, it stresses the necessity of faith in a world above the stars rather than below. Demonstrates in song and dialogue the comforts to be derived from religious belief. Furthermore, it discourses in an uncritical vein on the subject of superstition, as if this weren't anathema enough. It also sings out loud that people can be happy with plenty of nothing. An unwelcome message indeed. So this opera that they're taking in, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, depending on where you kiss, that could be illegal in any country. Sure, that's true. But but no, I like this. So they have this opera that that the USSR brings in because they're like, hey, this is going to kind of embarrass the Americans. Like it's going to make them a little uncomfortable. But then the opera that they bring in also is kind of embarrassing and and uncomfortable for the USSR. Yeah, it feels like this is going to backfire on literally everybody. Yeah, nobody's (laughs) going to come out. And if you're the if you're the opera company, you're excited because you are you're a touring company. You want people to underwrite. (laughs) Or you're going to get put to death. (laughs) 
Well, they have. There's there are diplomatic there's diplomatic stuff involved. Like they're not going to be shipped okay. off to a gulag. So it it always feels safe. It feels like if they. So so it feels institutionally safe. Like Russia has Russia has signed off on this, right? The USSR, the Soviets have said, Got yes, it. you can do this. But they don't know if the Russians know what the opera is about. They're like, are you sure this is good? Mm. You, you really <laughs> want us? Like there, there are moments when they they're like, are you is this this doesn't really mm-hmm. fit with with you guys. So um, this is the the opera that they're they're performing. And you kind of see you see the performance at the end of the story is this, it's really a climactic event. How does he get involved? How is he like, I heard about this. Let me jump on that train. Literally. Well, but that's, that's exactly it. He is at a place kind of journalistically and in New York society that he can say, Uh, hello friends. Like he, he knows the producers and he says, I would like to go along. And the, the nice thing is it's paid for by the Soviets. So they can say, yes, Soviets, we'd like to add one more to the bill. And so the Soviets are underwriting the whole thing, which is another aspect of this, right? It's the, the U S this department of state had been sponsoring the tour around Europe. But then when they go to the, the department of state and say, Hey, we'd like to go to Russia. Ah, they yeah, kind of the purse strings there. tighten up a little bit. And that's where the USSR sweeps in and says, well, if you Americans don't want to support art, we at least will. And so they kind <laughs> you know, of gain a one up there. You know, I really love this era of journalism where it's like Hunter S. Thompson goes to the, the salt flats to write captions for yep. this magazine or with Truman Capote, like, Rolling Stone paid him to tour with the Rolling Stones for oh like gosh. six months or something like that. So he hung out and partied and did all of this stuff. Never oh, wrote anything incredible. for Rolling Stone. He said, <laughs> he's like, yeah, it was kind of uninteresting, like oh, the actual man. like content of it, but I really enjoyed myself. I'm sorry, guys. Like, I got nothing. It was a lot of fun, but I got nothing. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that story. He, yeah, he just sort of like, he, he convinces them. Yes, it would be useful for me to go along with you. And he pays, it pays off because, because this is a really pleasant, as I say, a pleasant story. He has a really, as a writer, he has a clear, witty, observational voice. He's sharp, but he's not sarcastic or biting. I might call it like sort of like mellow, but with an ironic edge. So that quote that I just read kind of exemplifies this. He's like making critical insights about, stresses the necessity of faith in a world above the stars. Like he's making an analysis of this opera says things about religion that the Soviets wouldn't like, but he's also making little kind of funny jokes about the culture. Like this is the, the, the erotic, the erotic nature of the play of the opera is a serious cause for dismay in a nation with laws. So prim persons can be arrested for kissing in public. There's a little kind of a, a nudge there of, of we're better was than them. Capote uh, openly gay. He was. Yes at the time of this trip i think so i think i think most of his career is like a social person he was known as as out anything interesting there like is that a that's not a dynamic it sounds like because like i'm assuming what is that like just fully illegal at the time i i'm not sure i'm not sure like this is the thing so capote's voice is very evident this is like capote sitting down in his strange voice telling you a strange voice story but the person is not a big player in the events. So he manages to put his, his stylistic stamp on the story yeah. with like the stuff I just said about mellow, ironic, clear, but also witty, all that stuff. 
at the same time, he's not like, and then I went and did this and it was super cool. There are some like he's a shadow. Yeah, kind of like there are bits where he's off kind of walking in Moscow where he he goes to the shops with these people to go do some shopping. But it's never like and here's what I the great interesting Truman Capote did. OK, cool. Um, he talks in interviews or, or, or sorry, in, in um in a, uh, the, the introduction to my book about how he learned he developed the skill of just mentally memorizing conversations. So he is listening to what's happening around him. He's taking it all in. He doesn't have a tape recorder. He says that throws things off. That's he says when I you have a tape recorder, show. it makes things kind of not work. And so I just remember it. Remember, memorized everything. Got it. You guys ready for some, some train facts? Train just facts. Some quick train That'd facts. Be chugga, chugga, yeah. chugga, chugga. Are these wacky train facts? Oh, so wacky. Okay. There is a thing. There is a, a, a an approach to Soviet, like so the, the, the former Soviet Union where I feel like we can't wrap our minds around it. We get we we get it through snapshots. We get it through vignettes. Right. Is it because so, it's so big, Ian? Right, the largest nation on earth during, during its yeah, a lot of time zones. So this book gives you snapshots, and they're amazing snapshots. For instance, um, everyone on the on the train is like, "Oh yeah, this is catered by the Soviets. We gonna get caviar, vodka." That's like lots of caviar, lots of vodka. That's pretty much all we know about the diet. <laughs> I mean, that's what we need, baby. But they don't. They don't get caviar and vodka. They get keep getting over and over meals, the same meal with breaded veal and uh-huh. raspberry soda. So oh, imagine if you're expecting caviar and vodka and they serve for the fourth time on this train trip, some nice breaded veal with raspberry soda. Mm-hmm. Wow. The raspberry soda sounds really nice. It does sound refreshing. I mean, when when you do something well, you know, mm-hmm. just really hit that raspberry soda. Their train doesn't have hot water, but well, it's a there train. is there is a guy making very sweet hot tea point. in the dining car in a okay. samovar. So they ask him, "Can you give us some hot water?" And he's like, "No, no, I'm making tea." And they're like, "But you have a water heater there. You could heat some water and give it to us so we can shave." And he's like, "I will not." I will tea. make tea. I, this, it's tea water. I'm making tea. You may not have to. You can buy some tea. You can't have hot water. So the How long are they on this train? You could shave with it's tea. Like, it's like a several day trek. All right. What are you doing on this train, Joe, to stay busy? Uh, I assume there's like a viewing car. Uh, maybe some, you know, maybe one of those with like lots the of rough gambling. missing. There's lots of gambling. Kick back, have a raspberry uh, soda. There's a dog. Eat some borscht. On the that train? Is- a dog? A train dog? Uh, it's part of the part of the group, and the dog. How does he keeps, get between cars? Does he like go on those everywhere. bridges between the cars? And Capote does not get into the inter car movement. Just not important. It seems <laughs> seems dangerous. I feel like that would scare a dog. Like it's like really noisy on those like little connections between the cars, and you're outside. It's probably cold. The dog does keep peeing everywhere, so it's possible it is scared. Yes, yeah. I, it's hard to say. We don't really get into the psycho the psychology of the dog. Yeah, unfortunately. Sequel. <laughs> Can I finish my tea story? Yeah. I guess. Because the, the kicker is amazing. Yep. There's no, the guy says, no, you can buy tea. And so they do. And they shave with hot sugar water. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. <laughs> their their really razors good. are all like sticky. <laughs> or the moment, and this is kind of one of the darker elements of the story. When Capote is out walking in the snow, he's meeting a friend um, they're going to go drinking later. He's finally going to get some vodka. He's out walking in the snow. And there's a cathedral. It's after dark. And he kind of comes, turns around a corner, turns a corner. 
And he sees four men and a woman standing together, beating a man on the ground. And he walks, he watches it, and he's like, should I intervene? Should I not? And his friend rolls up and his friend says, get in the car, get in the, we gotta go. And he asks and the friend says, you have to ignore that for everyone's safety. So there's, there's kind of like this wacky stuff. There's like, ha ha, hot Doesn't sugar water, wacky. more raspberry soda. But then <laughs> there's like political violence happening. There's a spy yeah. that trails them around. So it's this, it's this comedy, which is kind of trembling on the edge of if I walk into the wrong part of town, maybe right. I might be picked up. Or if I say the wrong thing, or if I if I push it to there's a there's a guy who keeps getting off the train to take photographs because he likes to take photographs. He's not a spy, but they grab him and they say, "Give us your camera, give us your film." They destroy the film. They say, "If you do this again, we're destroying the camera. Get back on the train. No getting off the train. No photographs." It's like it's fun, but then you butt up against the wall of authoritarianism, and then that's not so fun. That's what yeah. I hear. That's what I hear. It reminds me of like when you hear about people like visiting Pyongyang now or something like that, where they're like, yeah, it's interesting and cultural and super impressive. But like it is just you're always just on the other side of the veil, which is right. which is hiding massive poverty and dictatorial authoritarianism, etc. ETC. How do you spell etc.? That's two words. C-E-T-E-R-A. Too long. It should really, yeah. Should really okay. abbreviate that. Cut it down. Um, what are we doing next week? Not doll. Um, we have a double racco. A double racco. A double racco. All right, Joe, tell me about our double reco. I know so little about it. I learned about it from a WhatsApp thread uh, that I ignored <laughs> for. Like, right, tell me about our double reco. <laughs> All right. So we have, I think, again, a first for the uh, podcast from a uh, listener recommendation. Eston Brown recommends the theme sudden extreme traumatic event or to use the, the acronym, acronymize that hmm. CT. See mm, sudden extreme traumatic event. Se- yes. SETI. CT. Got well, but SETI is different because that's the alien thing. It's the alien thing. Um, yeah. Oh, you do seat, but that's weird too. Anyway, the thing that Eston does here is recommends not just two books, but says, I'm going to assign these. So Love it. Eston assigns to me a book called Downtown Owl. Um, and you'll have to hear, listen, next year, next year, <laughs> next week to find out um, Eston says about Downtown Owl. But I'll just share that. Eston, are you watching me? Because this is so, to, to, to coin a phrase, so up my alley. It's yeah, disgusting. So yeah. Yeah. And Eston recommended for me a book that I had never heard of by an author I had never heard of uh, called The Greatest Thing Since Sliced Bread. And this is what I know about this book right now. Um, the author. Don Robertson, Stephen King says that everything he learned about writing, he learned from reading Don Robertson. Wow. (laughs) And it's about a little boy, like a nine-year-old boy who sets off on a pilgrimage across town with his little red wagon in tow and out of childhood forever. And I'm really excited. The book's coming in the mail. uh, Like, I think when we're done recording, it's going to be here. So uh, I'm excited that we're getting just personalized recommendations from the living. Yeah, this is pretty sweet.
Do you remember everything that Ian just said about okay, how you can't do like this super like serious and like uh, wacky and off the rails and Russian? I do. My book is so not like that, that it's hard to believe that it's by the same author. Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, not just the Deep Blue Something song. <laughs> what do you know about it? The film, the movie, etc. Nope. The film, the movie, the book. Nothing. Zero. I know nothing. So Audrey Hepburn, Breakfast at Tiffany's means nothing to you. Never saw it. I just know she has a big old updo and Mm -hmm. a long cigar at, and it promotes smoking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, smoking's cool. Is this book cool, Joe? This book is so cool, Nick. Oh, there we go. Groovy. This book, (laughs) it's, it's not even groovy. It's like hip. It's set in 1940s New York City, Uh, 1940s New York City. Tons of men are off at war. They are (laughs) off in World War II. Um, But a bunch of them are right here in New York City, especially like the artsy ones and the wealthy ones and the high society ones. This book is a about really, I, a lot of times I come in here and I say this book's about a whole bunch of things. This book is about one thing that you do matters say that so frequently, and it's about Holly Golightly. And I think she's one of the more compelling literary characters I've come across. Whoa. Also, do you remember how Nick's, how Ian's book is really short, like 170 pages? I do. My book is like 105 pages. My book Whoa. is so okay. short. It's actually we, a novella. He's really going for the jugular here today, Ian. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> also, I would like to remind you that there's currently a hurricane named Ian that is ravaging the coast. Ian, what do, do you we, have to say for yourself? I'm just wondering if you could uh, now make a public comment. I'm just wondering whether Truman, my little Capote, could um, could even write a could even write a long book ever because because like these are short, man. These yeah. are real short. Well, I do get that's the like, sense, dude. That's not even a novel. It's like a novella. It it is called a novella in it on the Wikipedia page. I get the <laughs> sense that. Truman Capote's writing life was a little bit hand to mouth. Like I think he led uh, this existence where he was always writing to pay the bills. I remember when we were reading In Cold Blood, one of the things he said is that he can't even, uh, he was asked in an interview if he ever writes for fun. And he was almost aghast at the question. And he said, I can't even imagine writing something that I didn't think I could sell. Yeah. He he says this, he says this in the, in the intro to my, my book, he's like, I, this is the only book I can say I liked writing. I don't like writing. <laughs> he yeah, says, like, he, the phrase really is, hard. the muses are heard is the one work of mine I can truly claim to have enjoyed writing an activity I've seldom associated with pleasure. Yeah, so it's here's, unreal. He's like, yeah, but no writer likes writing. Oh, yeah. I no. remember. No. Um, I remember reading something At least from that's what they say. Neil Gaiman <laughs> writing about Terry Pratchett. And one of the compliments that Neil Gaiman gave Terry Pratchett, then this is after Pratchett's death, is that Pratchett was one of the only writers that he knew who actually enjoyed the process of writing right. and not just having had written, Have, like having, having written. written. Yes. Speaking of hand-to-mouth existence, and the, uh, this book has kind of a wild little publishing history, which I like. Truman Capote initially sold this to Harper's Magazine. This is apparently at a time when you could just publish an entire novel in a magazine and they would print it. Uh, He sold it for $2,000. Well, if it's 100 pages, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, he sold it for $2,000 and it was a pretty big score for that. That would have been something like selling something now for $25,000, $30, or $30,000 to a magazine. That'll buy you a couple raspberry sodas, am I right, boys? <laughs> <laughs> can we get some branded, some you don't know that branded raspberry sodas, please? I think, fuck yeah, we can, Ian. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not just talking about slap some of those stickers on some raspberry soda. No, I mean, we're going to start a, a business selling a raspberry business. soda. A bottling plant. Right. Yeah. Raspberry. Have people break into Coca-Cola and steal their raspberry soda recipe. Mm-hmm. It's got to be glass bottles, I think, because of we're classy course. like that. We and a little shaped like raspberries. These are all great ideas. After he sold the novel, uh, the Harper's Magazine was bought by the Hearst Corporation, the oh, William Randolph ooh, Hearst Corporation. The, they're the bad guys in Newsies. Yeah, yeah it's it, big, big business. Big yeah. business came in and bought big this media. small scrappy, mm-hmm, this small scrappy art, uh, upstart. The Hearst executives started meddling with the manuscript, and they wanted Capote to change some of the novel's tart language if he was going to publish tart it. Tart language. Mm-hmm. And this novel, Nick, is a little blue in places. Uh, Capote didn't like it. He balked, but eventually he gave in. And then Harper's didn't publish it anyway. <laughs> Because they said the language was still uh, and the subject matter were not suitable, quote. And there was a concern that Tiffany's, a major advertiser, might react negatively Mm. to it. Now, he then sold it to Esquire for 50% more. And when it was published by Random House, Esquire made a boatload of money. Good for them. Joe, I'm really, really curious. Every time I know about this book, I think about this book, I think of a few things. One, the cigarette holder. Mm-hmm. Two. It's really long cigarette holder. Yes. Yeah, the longest long. I've ever seen. Like, think of Cruella DeVille. It's longer. Is it a little bit suggestive? Is that kind of like. Well, I don't, I don't know. know about that. Cigar is never sounds like Ian's cigar. Bringing something. Here's my second question. Hey, Eve, Ian, stop being a pervert. Yeah, okay. I'll stop. I'll <laughs> shut the perv. I'll shut the cool. perving down. Sounds Listen, good. Here's, here's my other association Tiffany's is like jewelry and stained glass. Mm. So, what is she eating for breakfast? That's like okay. the only thing I've ever wondered about this dang book. She Breakfast is obviously the best meal of the day. Mm-hmm. She goes for breakfast. Does she have cigarette? Does she have Quick cut glass? Follow Does up she question. have a ring? Yep. What? I. Joe, is this kind of like, I don't know what this is about, but I've always just assumed in my head this was kind of like some sort of Ikea meatball situation where you're just like going oh, and having be, actual could be, could be. breakfast at Tiffany's. Do they Does that ever take place? Meatballs at right, Tiffany's. like down at Tiffany's, got to get back into the black, and they decide to maybe start offering brunch, yeah. right? So two, two pretty clear questions. Please answer them. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first question is, there is never actually breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, come on. Book. Yeah, there's it's never right actually breakfast there. at Tiffany's. Uh, not only that, the actual store of Tiffany's never actually appears in come this book. On. Although, um, Holly Golightly, the main character, does have a, a monologue where she discusses why Tiffany's is so important to her and why Tiffany's is so romantic to her. In the movie, the very first scene is Audrey Hepburn, the way that they kind of deal with this in the movie. Audrey Hepburn gets out of a car, gets out of a cab outside of Tiffany's uh, after a long night of partying and socializing, and she stands and she looks in the windows kind of longingly. Not because she's looking to acquire like the wealth that's in Tiffany's, the, the glam that's in Tiffany's, but because Tiffany's, and this is a quote from the book, quote, feels like a place where absolutely nothing could ever go wrong. This podcast is like Tiffany's. <laughs> a place where nothing can ever go wrong. Yeah, like Tiffany's for Holly Golightly, and I'm going to get to Holly Golightly because she's the be absolute great. draw of this book. Tiffany's for Holly Golightly is a very safe place. It's also a place where she, like, um, we don't know that she's ever been to Tiffany's. I think like we should she, call our new segment Safe Space, Tiffany's. Oh, sure. Safe space at Tiffany's. Just, well, said, it sounds Tiffany's. like it's very interchangeable. Safe space so just Tiffany's, Tiffany's for short. Okay. Remember, we're omitting needless words, Joe? Okay, I'm sorry. That's Tiffany's. rule number two.
Joe, what's what's this goddamn book about? <laughs> this book is Not about, about um, breakfast, apparently. Yeah, or Tiffany. This book is about a writer, a thinly veiled Truman Capote. Of course it of is. Of course it is. Oh and my Truman gosh, Capote Truman is remembering one of the most remarkable people that he's ever met in his life. Uh, it's told entirely through flashback. Um, it, by the way, it's not. Uh, it's told entirely through trash, through flashback. <laughs> trashback. <laughs> Did they have flashback back then? Yeah, I think it's existed. Great. But, yeah. <laughs> the book is told entirely through flashback, and Truman Capote is basically remembering this remarkable person that he met. And portrait of her starts on something like page three. Like you're introduced to Holly Golightly right away. And one of the things that's great about this book is when you meet her, you absolutely cannot help but fall in love with her. Like the description of her, she's quirky, she's funny, she's glamorous, she's fashionable, she's in the know, right? But she's also like a little bit lonely, and a little bit lost and incredibly charming. Uh, and and like the portrait that he paints of her in a couple of paragraphs is you're immediately in love with this character and in your head picturing Audrey Hepburn the entire time. How how much of like, is this like a, a, a young woman in New York, right? Is that the like, am I picturing yeah. this person in my head correctly? Because I have the movie in my head, yep. like the imagery there. Is that kind of the same? If you have the imagery from the movie in your head, I think the movie is pick is is pitch perfect. Is the imagery the from book, this you're book, saying. the right? movie like, pitch perfect, the movie pitch perfect, right? Or pitch perfect too? No, th- this movie. Or I, three. When, when I when I when I watched the film and I watched the film after I read this book this last week, when I watched the film. I couldn't believe how like the first half of the film, how much it just nailed the book. Like it felt the same. It's exactly how I imagined it, right? The characters felt the same. Like I fell in love with them. I liked them and disliked them and loathed them in the same ways that I, that I love them and liked them and loathed them in the book. Nick, are you familiar? uh, And Ian, are you familiar with the idea of a manic pixie dream girl? Have you heard this before? Is she the first MPDG? Okay. Okay. Ian, what do you know about manic pixie? Um, there it's, it was a trend between like, I mean, it's still kind of a trend, but, um, the, the, the female lead oftentimes in a movie, she would be kind of small or undersized often played like, like your Natalie Portman's. Mm -hmm. Um, she would be, uh, usually having some kind of like maybe mental health issues. Yeah. Um, there would be an element of like saving. She would, mm-hmm. she would come in maybe like be saved or be the savior. Her whole draw is her other kind of otherness, other, yeah. other worldliness. Yeah, it, and she's not, it. she's not really a well-realized female character. She's more of a, a stock kind of cardboard figure. It's beautiful. And that's the criticism that you hear of manic pixie dream girls. Like usually when you hear that phrase, manic pixie dream girl, it's, not said as a compliment of a character, right? It's a cardboard character, a character who is there to help the main character realize something about himself, right? right. Almost always yeah. himself yeah. in that case. Like she's a vehicle for the main character to realize, to come to a realization. When I started reading this book, my first thought was, oh my God, is Holly Golightly the first manic pixie dream girl? Because that's what she feels like. She's quirky and she's fun and you love her and she's definitely other. Like she's not like other girls, but she's also accessible and like she really likes the narrator. Sounds like she's got it all. She's got it all. (laughs) 
over the 100 pages of this book, the 105 pages, the 110 pages, whatever it is of this book, the journey that you go on with Holly Golightly is her turning from the image that she wants you to see, the image that she portrays to the world, which is very much this manic pixie dream girl image, to a real and interesting and deep person who has all sorts of her own struggles. Like we get into her past, we get into like why she does what she does. Um, Like Holly Golightly doesn't work, but she also doesn't come from any money. She makes her career, such as it is, as a socialite in 1940s New York. And that means... When you read it, it's easy to interpret it like a call girl. And for a long mm. time when I was reading this book, I kept thinking like, is she a prostitute? L- right. Like they never come out and say, you kind of read between the lines, but it's like, is Holly Golightly a high class prostitute? But as it goes on, it becomes- Do other people think this, Ian, or is that just- Yeah, Joe? this is this is kind of the, that like <laughs> my, my general sense of the, of the, the text is like, this is, this is her character. This is who she- yeah. Right. And- as you read and goes on and go on, it becomes clear that she's not a prostitute, but also like she seems to go out with men on dates and like get gifts and money in exchange for it. And Truman Capote himself, when asked about this, he said, no, 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 no. Like she's not a call girl. She's more of an American geisha is the word that he used where he said she would like she's this high society girl. She goes out with these guys uh, with expense accounts, but the implicit understanding, the tacit understanding is that they give her a little gift or sometimes they give her some money. Like the girl, mm-hmm. this is like the girlfriend experience. Yeah. Kind of the girlfriend experience. And like, does she sleep with them? Well, sometimes, but not always if she wants to like that sort of thing. And the, power of this book. And the the reason I really love this book is kind of seeing that transformation of Holly Golightly from holy smokes, I love this girl who won't love this girl to holy smokes, my heart kind of breaks for this girl and like how interesting and compelling. And then when she goes away, because eventually like this book has kind of like wild, wild twist em ups and goes in unexpected directions and surprises you. And when you get to the end of this book, you really kind of miss Holly Golightly and you kind of want things to be okay for her. And it's not super clear if they do or not, Mm. or if she just kind of re-enters into this cycle. Hey Joe. Yeah. Just like in real life. Just like Mm. in real life. Who's the speculation? Who's the girl? Yeah. Oh, so there's actually kind of, there's like entire Wikipedia articles devoted to this. Of course. Many, many people have claimed to be the inspiration for Holly Golightly. Oh, well, no, (laughs) I I don't buy that. Yeah, I'm the inspiration for The Rock. Like, (laughs) bottled it off of me. Like, anyone can do that. That's all Hurricane Ian. So many, many people have claimed to be the inspiration for Holly Golightly. And you can imagine why actresses or socialites would claim something like that, right? Um, Who the girl is, Truman Capote has never come out and said. There's quite a bit of speculation. It's most likely an amalgamation of a handful of other girls. Truman Capote was furious when Audrey Hepburn was cast in the movie. He thought it should be Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Marilyn Monroe turned the part down. Um, But turned it down. Strange move. Probably bad call. Bold. (laughs) Bold move. Um, Other people that and other people that have been kind of linked to it are Gloria Vanderbilt, uh, famous Vanderbilt, Marilyn Monroe, Susie Parker, somebody named Una O'Neill, who um, not just doesn't just have two names that start with O, but her first name starts with two O's, which is really cool. 
basically every movie star at that time. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of movie <laughs> stars. Female, at that time. And, well, and A-lister. not movie stars, but A-listers. I think you've yeah. nailed it there. Like, not movie stars, but people in the, maybe the scene, if you want to call it that. Groovy. <laughs> um, Nick, do you remember the term for a story that has, like, uh, literary characters have uh, real world? Um, uh, uh, he's going to get it. Nick, he's, he's going to get it. Buildings Roman? Ooh. <laughs> Dang. So close. It's a different kind of Roman. It's a Romana Clef, a novel with a key. So the the chapter that I was I was referencing where he kind of got in huge trouble with everyone in New York is called La Cote Basque 1965. It's published in 1975. And this, he he publishes this and people they hate him because they're seeing yeah. themselves in it and he's like trashing them. And, but this is fascinating because he, he, one of the people he, he trashes in this, this chapter, which he published in Esquire is Jackie Kennedy. Like this is, these are the, the, the yeah. circles he's moving in. But when breakfast at Tiffany's comes out, people are like, Oh, it's me. It's that's me. Yep. <laughs> ah, hello. It's me. T- yeah. Tiffany. I guess signs that it's a good, well, good story, and- right? Well, it's a good story, and I think just a sign of the changing times, too. In the little bit that I have written about Truman Capote here, one of the lines that I have is, he once threw a party that is so famous, it has its own Wikipedia page. Yes. And he threw this ball for his friend's birthday. It was kind of her, whatever. It was a birthday on behalf of his friend. But the real point of the party is he was like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal now. I travel in pretty elite circles, and I suddenly have quite a bit of money. I'm going to throw a rager. And it was this party where like the guest list for it was published in the New York Times the next day, right? Like he spent months putting it together. Like they had like dinner, like small dinner parties with all these different people as kind of like a farm team for this like black and white ball that they ended up throwing. And it was this time where people went from um, where it became very fashionable to be seen at this party, right? Like it would be very good to be on the guest list yeah. for this party. So Nick breakfast at Tiffany's it's outstanding. You should read it for a bunch of reasons, but the main reason you should read it is because yeah. you're going to be tempted to just watch the movie. It is. Remember how I said the first half of the book is a lot like or the first half of the movie is a lot like the first half of the book. The, the second half is absolutely nothing like the book. Oh, uh, the movie deviates in wild ways, hmm. I think, in worse ways that Uh-oh. make it a more palatable film, but a less interesting story. Here comes the so, controversy. Breakfast at Tiffany's. You should read it. It takes like two hours to read. Welcome to Tiffany's. Now, remember, this is a safe space in which you can, free of judgment, get real real. Ooh, uh, I'll be honest with you. I'd forgotten that this uh, segment existed. And I, I don't really it's going to sound. No, no. Just to be clear, you don't have to make up something negative. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 compensate here with more lies. I will say this. You have to, like, get poor Gene Bess for my book to really, like, hit and he does a good job of introducing poor Gene Bess, but I could see how you would pick up this book, see it's about an, an opera, which is already kind of a difficult genre to get into. And the opera is called something like poor Gene Bess. And you might say, yeah, I'm out. And, and I'm here to say that like he gets you in. He gives you what you need to know about this, the, the about the opera. But it could be potentially uh, initially ostracizing or alienating. There we go. And the main thing I didn't like about my book is the whole time I was reading it, I was picturing Audrey Hepburn in my mind oh, as Holly man. Golightly. And 
when I found out that Truman Capote was vehemently against Holly Golightly being Audrey Hepburn, what? I didn't really understand if I was understanding Holly Golightly anymore. <clears throat> oh, like boy. It, yeah, it kind of made Concerning. me sad. Concerning. Uh-huh. Joe, your, your book doesn't sound good at all, but it's an <laughs> iconic, right? And it's Ian, iconic. your book sounds really good. Mm-hmm. Um in in like style but like yeah. the topic sounds i don't know you know so yeah. who won last week ian has won something like 20 weeks in a row at this point that's, oh that's really inaccurate. is that true that's inaccurate. Yeah, who's keeping track i don't know how what it's been but oh hey ian you lose that's I not very this. nice Nick, I need you, this. yeah congratulations <laughs> joe right. on full merit of your book alone you've won congratulations Uh, i'm just happy to be here when somebody gives you a gift the only appropriate response is thank you that's right ian (laughs) maybe you should Um, keep that in mind and you'll start winning (laughs) (laughs) linheads if you want to um if you want to have breakfast with us at tiffany's well i'm sorry there's no such thing as breakfast it has been outlawed get it there it's false advertising Um, you cannot get breakfast at (laughs) tiffany's please stop lining up outside of our door people have like gone to tiffany's looking for breakfast i'm sure that yes so uh yes if you would like to have breakfast with us at tiffany's go ahead and head on over to tiffany's which is what we're calling the website now Uh, you can request a book uh request sorry uh, suggest a book or a theme as um as has been done in many uh, situations, including next week. We've got one of those coming up next week. Uh, You can also request a sticker. I still have some stickers available and you should get them out of my grubby paws before I start putting them on raspberry soda bottles. Um, You can tell a bookish friend about our, our nice little podcast show here. You can recommend us to your dearest enemy. Um, And I just want to close by saying, what about breakfast at Tiffany's? What about it? All right. This is the first that we meet Holly Golightly. The first our narrator sees Holly Golightly. I know she's still there because I went up the steps and looked at the mailboxes. It was one of these mailboxes that had first made me aware of Holly Golightly. I'd been living in the house about a week when I noticed the mailbox belonging to apartment two had a name slot fitted with a curious card. Printed, rather Cartier formal, it read, Miss Holiday Golightly. And underneath, in the corner, traveling. It nagged me like a tune. Miss Holiday go lightly, traveling. One night, it was long past 12, I woke up to the sound of Mr. Yunoshi calling down the stairs. Since he lived on the top floor, his voice fell through the whole house, exasperated and stern. Miss go lightly, I must protest. The voice that came back, welling up from the bottom of the stairs, was as silly young and self-amused. Oh, darling, I am sorry. I lost the goddamn key. You cannot go ringing my bell. You must please, please have yourself a key made. But I lose them all. I work. I have to sleep, Mr. Yonoshi shouted. But always you're ringing my bell. Oh, don't be angry, you dear little man. I won't do it again. And if you promise not to be angry, her voice was coming nearer. She was climbing the stairs. I might let you take those pictures we mentioned. By now I'd left my bed and I'd opened the door an inch. I could hear Mr. Yonoshi's silence. Hear it because it was accompanied by an audible change of breath. When, he said. The girl laughed. Sometimes, she answered, slurring the word. Anytime, he said, and he closed his door. I went out into the hall and I leaned over the banister just enough to see without being seen. She was still on the stairs. Now she reached the landing and the ragbag colors of her boy's hair, tawny streaks, strands of albino blonde and yellow caught the hall light. It was a warm evening, nearly summer, and she wore slim, cool black dress, black sandals, a pearl choker, 
For all her chic thinness, she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health. A soap and lemon cleanness, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. Her her mouth was large, her nose upturned. A pair of dark glasses blotted out her eyes. It was a face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. I thought her anywhere between 16 and 30. As it turned out, she was two months shy of her 19th birthday. 